Paul. Just a further note about the special benevolence. If you're giving just kind of your regular giving this morning, that's fine. You can put it in the same place. Just don't put a note on the, uh, on the memo or just put regular giving. If you want to give specifically to Bavarian Manor and to the work that, that we are beginning to do uh, there to people who are in need, then write either benevolence or Bavarian Manor on the memo line. If you misspell benevolence, uh, it'll be reduced by 50%, but that's okay. If you misspell uh, Bavarian, you probably shouldn't live in New Braunfels, so. Okay, we are uh, finishing up. We're finishing up a series that we've been in that we've been calling The Surprising Branches of God's Family Tree. And we've been looking at Matthew chapter 1. Matthew begins his gospel by announcing that the king is coming and then tracing the line of that king through his genealogy from Abraham through David all the way to Jesus. And the interesting thing about Matthew's genealogy is that it includes a lot of people we would not have figured to be in there. Five women are in that genealogy, four of whom we are going to have talked about by the end of today. And we've seen that many of these women are, um, we can identify with them quite a bit. Now maybe if it were us, we wouldn't have put them in our own genealogy. The beautiful thing is that the one person who was able to write his own genealogy included these women. The last of whom is Mary. She's probably the most famous. She's undoubtedly the most famous of the women that show up in Matthew's genealogy. And honestly, when he begins to talk about her, he doesn't really talk a whole lot about who Mary is. But what we do get is the announcement of the coming of the king. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. So if you've got a Bible, open it up to Matthew chapter 1. I'm going to read to us from verse 18 through the end of the chapter. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we come eager to hear what you have to say to us this morning. We come waiting for this announcement of the king. Although oftentimes I think we... We wait for something that is sentimental, something that is culturally driven, something maybe that we think just kind of comes around because, well, that's just what we do. We forget, Lord, who we really wait for. So will you show us, will you reveal to us Jesus this morning as we open your word? Lord, will you open our hearts that we might hear and know what you have to say to us today? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, there is a phenomenon in our culture that's kind of sprung up really in the last, I don't know, probably 10, 15 years, is maybe even shorter than that, and it's called a gender reveal party. Raise your hand if you've ever been to a gender reveal party. Okay, raise your hand if you have any idea what I'm talking about. Okay, a few of us. So it's the way that young couples these days have fun by announcing if they're going to have a boy or a girl when they're pregnant. Now, if you're over 60, the gender reveal was done by the doctor, right, when he slapped your baby on the butt and said, it's a boy. Congratulations. And if you are over 40, probably the only gender reveal you had was when you went and got a sonogram and then you told your friends by saying, hey, we're having a boy, right? But now there's a really cool kind of tradition that people are throwing parties and either it's through a sonogram or through DNA testing that they, they find out the gender of the child and it's hidden from everybody who's invited to the party. The mom and the dad know, but they invite everybody in for this shower, and it's this big secret. And then they reveal that secret in some sort of fun way. Uh, friends of mine had baked a cake, and it was a white cake with white icing, and everything was really fun. But when they cut into the cake, the inside of the cake was pink. Everybody knew, it's a girl. Sometimes people will release a big bunch of balloons, and they'll either be blue balloons or pink balloons. Sometimes there'll be a pinata, right? And blue candy will come out or pink candy will come out, and it's a way for everybody to get excited. And then, of course, everybody films it and puts it on YouTube. There's like half a million, literally half a million gender reveal videos on YouTube. I think YouTube may have just invented the gender reveal party. What happens actually in Matthew chapter 1 is a similar sort of thing. Matthew is actually revealing something for us. He's gathered us together, and he tells a story even of an angel who visits and gathers Mary and Joseph, the mother and father, to reveal to them exactly who it is that they are about to try and raise. He reveals not the gender of the child, but he reveals actually the source of this child. He reveals the unique name that this child is going to be given He reveals the purpose for which this child has come and really answers some very deep questions for us. Questions like, how did Jesus come about? Who is this guy, Jesus, that we talk about all the time? And why has he come? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to focus on three things. And I just said, and we're going to focus on the source of Jesus, the source of his coming, the revealing of that source. We'll focus on Matthew revealing to us the name of who this is, who this person is, and then also his purpose. Why? Why has Jesus come? Let's look at that first one first, the source. Matthew tells us actually in verse 18, now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child. And it was a child from the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus, we need to make sure that we say this, Jesus was a baby, a real human baby, like any baby you've seen, like many of the babies that are in here in our congregation or upstairs in the nursery right now, a baby with flesh, a baby that cried when he was hungry, a baby that pooped when he needed to poop, a baby that did all of the things that babies do. Jesus' humanity is something that we've got to hold on to. Because if we start to lose our grip on his humanity, then we actually lose the balance. We lose our balance of who Jesus is. A real human person. But Matthew tells us, and he tells us twice, that this is not Joseph's baby. That this is actually a child who has been given to Mary, conceived even of the Holy Spirit. 
a child of the Spirit. The source of this child that this angel announces to Joseph is of the Holy Spirit. We've been looking through this genealogy. We've been focusing on these women that show up in this genealogy. And I think it's been a very fruitful uh, discussion for, for my heart, at least, and hopefully for yours. And as we get to Mary, it's interesting. As you see Matthew dig down a little bit deeper into this story, I went in thinking, well, great, this is a story about Mary. We get to talk about Mary. But really, even just one cursory reading, you realize there's a lot more about Joseph in here than there is about Mary. Uh, Joseph is the one who finds out Mary's pregnant. Joseph is the one who the angel visits in the dream. Joseph is the one who decides he's going to quietly divorce Mary. Joseph is the one who changes his mind after the angel visits him. And Joseph is the one who names Jesus. So I thought, well, I guess this is, I guess this is going to be a sermon about Joseph. This is a story about Joseph. And the more that I read, and with the help of commentators that I read with, I realized that this isn't about Mary. It's not about Joseph either. It is about the Holy Spirit. In fact, Matthew tells us not once but twice that this is a child of the Holy Spirit. He announces it at first, and then the angel tells Joseph the exact same thing. And listen to this. This is pretty amazing. When he says that the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way, that word birth, we think, just the regular thing that happens all the time. But actually, the Greek word that's behind that English word in our Bibles is Genesis. The Genesis of Jesus took place in this way. The beginning, just like the first book of the Bible. And as we open up the Bible's first pages, what we see is that the earth is formless and void. And the Spirit of God is hovering hovering over the surface of the deep. The Spirit of God is ready to burst forth in creative energy. The Spirit of God is there ready to create something new where there is nothing. To create all things out of nothing. To find something that is void and empty and then to fill it with beauty and wonder, with extravagance, with culture, with creation, with gorgeous things and with human beings. That's what the Spirit of God does in Genesis 1. And it's what Matthew tells us that the Spirit of God does here in Mary's womb. And the reason is that that's what the Spirit does all the time. It is the Spirit's job to create something out of nothing. To create life where there once was no life. One commentator says that every conversion is a virgin birth. What he means by that is that what the Spirit is doing in Mary is the same thing that the Spirit does in our hearts when we come to faith in Christ. When we come to see our need for Jesus and we come to receive him by faith, it's that same creative work, that same amazing miracle that the Spirit does in bringing forth life into an empty womb. In bringing forth life into an empty world, into an empty universe, that incredible, powerful, creative spirit of God is at work not only in creation but in our hearts. It is that spirit that moves to create something out of nothing in us. That is the truth that the Bible proclaims, that we need the Holy Spirit to work in us, that we might even cry out to God for forgiveness and for mercy, that we might receive his love. And it's also true that the Holy Spirit works to produce life in dead places everywhere. Here's my question for us this morning. Do we believe in virgin births? What I mean is, do we believe that the Spirit has the power to create life in places that we thought were dead? To bring to life 
dead marriages. To bring to life dead relationships between mother and son. To bring to life the dead places in your life that you feel like will never be live again. The places in your life that you feel like need to just be discarded. Or the places in your life that you're spending most of your time medicating yourself to try and keep yourself from looking at them. To try and figure out some way to enliven these places in your life. Do we believe that the Spirit actually goes to work in those places? To take dead people and the dead places in our lives and to bring them to life, to bring them to new life. The Bible says that He does. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit has the same power to enliven our hearts and our lives that He has to enliven the womb of Mary to create all things. That's the first thing that we get revealed to us by Matthew. In this amazing revealing, the source of Jesus, of who he is, of this incredible virgin birth, is the same powerful source that still is at work in our hearts. Here's the second thing. We also get revealed to us, Matthew tells us, in this announcement of the Savior King, he tells us who he is by giving us his names. We are announced Jesus and revealed Jesus to us by Matthew through the names that he gives us. Look, there's two of them actually. Interesting, isn't it, that there's two names that show up for Jesus. Now, you know, the way that we name our kids these days is pretty different. Uh, My kids actually all have family names, so they're all named after someone else who's in our family. Virginia Louise is named after my wife's grandmother. Hampton Thomas. Hampton is my middle name. It was my grandfather's middle name. Thomas is his grandfather's first name. Um, uh, Anderson Duke is one grandfather's mother's maiden name and the other grandfather's mother's maiden name. So we've got this combination of all of this family history that's kind of coming forth in our children. We think that's kind of fun. We like it. George Foreman, the boxer, has 12 children, five of whom are sons, and he named them all George. And one of his daughters, Georgetta. That's just how he does it. In the ancient world, uh, names actually meant a lot more. Sometimes you'd have people naming after the father or after an uncle or after a grandfather to carry on a particular family name. But oftentimes you'll find when you open up the Bible that you have people naming their children after the events that are occurring or after the things that even they're feeling at the time. If it's really, if they're born really in a terrible time, they may name that child a really terrible name, you know, the the child of destruction or, you know, the child of famine, that sort of thing. They'll carry actually on the name that means what's going on at the time. Or if a child bears this great promise, if a child bears some sort of future weight, then they will give a name to that child that bears that weight. And when the angel comes to Joseph in a dream. He tells Joseph, I want you to name this child Jesus. Now, Jesus for us is just kind of a regular name. We see it all the time. We talk about Jesus all the time. But it's actually got a longer history than just here in Matthew. Because Jesus would have been really a Greek translation of the word that we know as Joshua. The name that we know as Joshua. And Joshua has a meaning. Joshua is a shortened form of the word Yeshua, which means God saves. God helps. Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, saves his people. He is salvation to them. And so as Joshua and then Jesus after him take up this name, it bears great meaning. His name literally means that God saves. That God is salvation. That salvation comes from him. 
But then we actually see, as you read on a couple more verses, you see uh, Matthew introduces to another name of Jesus. Because he talks about a prophecy from the prophet Isaiah, some 500 years before Jesus was born, where he says this, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And then he tells us, we don't have to go dig it too far, because he tells us what it means. He says, which means God with us. So here's Jesus' two names here. He's got God saves and God with us. Why would Jesus have two names? Why are we introduced to two names to Jesus? Well, watch this, because they actually kind of go together. God saves, well, his people would have known that, right? They would have known that God saves them. They would have seen that history if they would have been reading their Old Testaments, their Bibles. They would have known the salvation of God. But why would Jesus be named God saves? In fact, Matthew tells us you should name him God saves because he will save his people from their sins. Now, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. If he will save his people from their sins, why would you name him God saves? If he's the one doing the saving, why would you name him God saves? And the second name really helps us out here. Because it means God with us. And we are introduced to this man, and this must have blown Joseph's mind here. (laughs) Introduced to this person who is God actually in the flesh. Who is God made man, God with us to save us. Think about just for a second what it would have been like to be Joseph in this instance. (laughs) To be announced that here is this person. Here is this child that's being born. And oh, by the way, there's this huge weight behind him of the Messiah and God saving. And but, but but it's him who says he's going to save. And then he's God with us. What do I do with all of that? He must have, he must have spent hours and hours trying to figure all of that out. In fact, the church has spent years and years trying to figure all of that out. For many years, church leaders across the world got together and they said, what do we make of all of this? How do we really figure out who Jesus is? And pretty early on in the church's history, they got together in these councils where many wise uh, Christian leaders would decide, what is it that we think the Bible says about who Jesus is? And what they built for us is a foundation that we get to stand on. Listen to the words that we've recited here before of the Nicene Creed. Fourth century, long, long time ago, this is what we have recited. That we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, eternal, divine. But for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. And he was made human. That's the incredible tension that we deal with in the Bible. That is the incredible tension that we're called even to lean into. That God is actually divine. That he is the God who saves, but he is also the God who is with us. That Jesus is completely God, yet completely man. That he is the one who has come to say, here I am, with you, to save you. And it's actually that second part that leads us even into the third thing that Matthew announces here. He tells us who Jesus is with his names. He tells us his source is the Holy Spirit. And now he tells us what he's come to do. This is the third thing. Look at verse 21. 
Again, she will bear a son, the angel says to Joseph, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people. Again, think for a second what it would have been like to be Joseph. Your fiance is pregnant, not sure what to do with that. And then an angel comes to you and says, listen, this fiance of yours is pregnant. She's actually still a virgin. She's pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Oh, and by the way, the child that she is about to give birth to is the long-awaited Messiah. He's going to grow up in your home. And he is the person who is going to save his people. But he's going to save them from their sins? Probably the one point in that extremely confusing whole story that was the most confusing. Let's give a little bit of a history lesson first. See, God's people, Israel, had been in bondage, had been under somebody else's thumb and control for really a lot of their history. They spent 400 years as slaves in Egypt. God rescued them. He brought them into a new land, the land of Canaan that he gave them. He established them as a nation, and they were there as their own rule for a little while. But as they wandered away from God, they they were infiltrated by enemies that would start to come and take them over. And it didn't take long for the one nation that God had established to divide, to break apart, and for the northern nation to actually be succumbed to the Assyrians. So they were carried off into exile, they were overcome by the Assyrians, and they really were no more. And all that was left of God's people was the southern tribe, Judah. And they went on for a little bit longer, with some pretty bad kings for most of that time, until they were conquered by Babylon. And for 70 years, there was no such thing as the nation of Israel. There was no God's people in their land. They were dispersed, or they were slaves in Babylon. Then, there's a new big power that comes to town. If you look at world history, it's really just about who's the new kid on the block with the bigger stick. And the bigger stick at this point is Persia. Overcomes Babylon, sends people back to their own places, and yay, we're back now in Jerusalem. We're back in Israel. We can worship. We can be our own people. But kind of. Because they're really under Persian control. And from that time forward, they really are not autonomous. Because not too long after that, Alexander the Great comes in and he conquers the known Western world at the time. And he gets everybody to speak Greek and he promotes this Greek culture. And he reigns over everything, including Israel. And then, of course, as history does, somebody else new with a bigger stick comes in and the Roman Empire comes in and they take over everybody. And we've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years that the time where the angel comes and he says, all right, the Messiah's coming. The Messiah's coming and he's going to save his people. Well, if, if you were an astute Jew at the time, if you had been reading your Bible, you knew, A, the Messiah was coming. He was promised. He was going to be a king who was going to, who was going to rule and he was going to save his people. But who did you think he was going to save them from? The sins of our enemies. Those people who have been overcoming us year after year for hundreds of years, who we have lived under their thumb. They're going to come and kick the Romans out. We're going to finally punish the Romans for all of their sins. And in the most amazing and confusing way, what the angel proclaims to Joseph here is that this Messiah, this Jesus, this God who saves, this God who is with us, is actually going to do something a lot more comprehensive. That he's come to save you from your sins. See, if you were one of God's people at the time, you probably would have thought... The problem is out there. The problem is out there. It's these Romans. 
before them was these Greeks or these Babylonians or Persians. The problem has always been the people who have come and want to keep us under their thumb. The problem is out there, not in here. But what the angel says to Joseph is, no, no, it's just the opposite. The real problem, the big problem, the final problem, the comprehensive problem in your life is inside, not outside. Our culture is not much different than theirs, friends. Because very oftentimes, that is exactly what we think the big problems in the world are. You know, if we could just find a political solution, things would be okay. If we could just get people to act right, then things would be okay. If we could just get our culture back to where it used to be, then things will be okay. If we could just move our culture ahead of where it used to be, then things will be okay. If we could just get more freedom and keep people from uh, keeping all of these restraints on us and let us do actually the things we want to do, then we'll be okay. If we could just put more restraints on people and keep them from doing all the stuff that they want to do because they're doing stupid stuff, then we'll be okay. You hear it all. But the one thing in common with all of those is the problem is out there. (laughs) And what the Bible says is just the opposite. That our real problem, our lasting problem, our comprehensive problem is that we ourselves are broken. Is that there's something wrong, something broken with our own hearts. That we are not the people that we want to be. We are certainly not the people that we should be. If you've ever looked at yourself in the mirror and been even just a little bit honest with yourself, you know that about who you are. We are not who we should be. And what this angel is telling Joseph, and what Matthew is announcing to us today, what he is revealing to us is that we have a problem. Is that the world has a problem and it's something wrong with us. And Jesus has come to save. To make that problem go away. Friends, that's what Matthew announces, what he reveals to us this morning. A Savior King who is born of the Holy Spirit, born in the same power that the Spirit has to change our own hearts, who is given this name that God saves and God is with us, and who has come to save us in the most comprehensive and unbelievable way possible. So the challenge for us today is do we believe that? Do we believe that announcement? Will we get on board with what Matthew has announced to us? If all of this is totally new to you, if you've never heard any of this discussion about who Jesus is, let me just encourage you to keep chewing on it. Be challenged by what Matthew reveals here and announces. And if you'd like to, come talk to me afterwards. I would love to talk more about it. And for those of you who have heard this, sitting in these chairs or other chairs for all of your life, let me encourage you to do the same. Be challenged once again to see the power of the Spirit at work in this room. To see the uniqueness of who Jesus is as the God who saves and the God who has come to take up our flesh. To be with us, to actually insert himself into our brokenness. And the God who has come to fix not just the little problems in our world, not to put a band-aid on things, but to actually heal what is truly wrong with us. This is the God that is announced by Matthew. This is the King and the Savior. This is the child that is announced in Christmas, and that is what we celebrate today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can open your word, and you reveal something to us. You haven't hidden it from us. You haven't played hard to get. You haven't played coy with us. 
You're not making us go on some wild goose chase to try and find out exactly who you are and who your son is. Lord, you've actually shown us. So, Father, now we ask that we respond to that well. That we would respond to what you have revealed to us. Well, show us who we are and how much we need you. We pray all of this in your son's name. Amen.